You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be looking at uh, the first 15 verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you know Pastor Tim, uh, you'll know that he has several uh, deep loves in his life. He loves his God, he loves his family, he loves his church, and he loves his books. He loves his books. I was talking to him earlier this week, and I was asking him how he's doing uh, with with social distancing, with being at home. And, uh, you know, uh, after he talked about what a lovely time he's been having with, with Joanne and with John at home, he talked about how much he loves his books. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you've had the opportunity to be mentored by Tim and uh, prayed for by Tim, you'll know how much of an influence his books have had in his life. Uh, last year... Uh, Tim brought a book to my attention and to many of our attention. Uh, it's a book called Living Life Backward. Living Life Backward. And it's written by a Scottish pastor named David Gibson. This book, Living Life Backward, you've probably never heard about it because it's actually about a book in the Bible that none of us, uh, that, or that very few of us are familiar with. It's a book about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is not a very popular book in Christian circles today. In fact, if I ask most of you what the, the, the main message of the book of Ecclesiastes is, you, you probably wouldn't have a very clear answer. And to be honest, until I started studying Ecclesiastes recently, I would have said the same thing. But as, I, as I've studied Ecclesiastes, I've come to realize that, that this treasure in the Old Testament is perhaps one of the most important books in the Bible for us to understand and to apply in this era of COVID-19. And the reason for that is because if we, if we dig down deep into the root of Ecclesiastes, it's about this truth. It's about the fact that everything in this world, everything under the sun is fleeting and temporary. And it's just a matter of time before all that we've done crumbles away and all that we are is forgotten. Now that would be depressing if that were the only point in this book, but it's not the only point because uh, Ecclesiastes fits within the genre of biblical wisdom, of wisdom literature. And wisdom is not just about death. Wisdom is actually about life. It's about how we are to live in a way that glorifies God and that helps us to grow in joy. And so what Ecclesiastes does is it takes the inevitable fact and reality of our death And it shows us how that ought to shape the way that we live each day. It shows us how death can actually make life more beautiful. You could say that it teaches us how living life backward is actually the key to living life to the full. David Gibson, he writes this in the preface to the book. It's a rather lengthy quote, but it's a a wonderful quotation, one that has imprinted itself on my heart, and I commend to you fully. He, He says this. Left to our own devices, we tend to live life forward. One day follows another, and weeks turn into months and months into years. We do not know the future, but we plan and hope and dream of where we will be and what we would like to be doing and whom we might be with. We live forward. 
Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives, and to think about them from the perspective of the end. It is, it is the destination that makes sense of the journey. If we know for sure where we are heading, then we can know for sure what we need to do before we get there. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions, and our strongest desires. I want to persuade you that only if you prepare to die can you really learn how to live. That's, that's uh, Pastor Gibson's mic drop moment. Only by learning... Uh, only by learning to prepare to die can we really learn how to live. And that's the kind of wisdom that we need in these days. Because if COVID-19 has taught us anything up to this point, it is that death is closer to us than any of us are comfortable admitting. Um, you may have heard our Premier's announcement on Friday about the forecast for Ontario uh, in terms of the number of infections that are going to be present in Ontario by the end of April. And uh, I won't go into all the specifics, but those numbers parallel the, the, the kinds of infections that are present in the whole nation of China right now. Um, things are bleak and things seem to be looking bleaker. Um, death is, you could say, staring at us. And we can either try to run away from it and ignore that it's staring at us, or we can stare at it right back and see what lessons the Lord has for us about what life is truly about. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be printed on our PowerPoint. Thank you again, John Cleditis, for facilitating our Zoom service today. I'll be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people 
fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The title of this sermon is Learning from COVID-19. Learning from COVID-19. We're going to break up our text today into three points. First, God's time. Second, God's gift. And third, God's work. Let's look at our first point today, God's time. Now, these first uh, eight verses in our text today have been described as the world's most famous poem on the subject of time. And when you read it slowly and meditatively, meditatively, it's actually not surprising why. The poem is made up of 14 pairs, and each pair represents two ends of a spectrum of human experience. You'll see life and death, love and hate, war and peace, etc. Um, and and th these, these pairs represent a figure of speech in Old Testament literature where uh, it emphasizes the two ends of the spectrum, but it's meant to actually include everything in between as well. Uh, we see the most famous example of that figure of speech in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God didn't just create the heavens and he didn't just create the earth. He created everything in between. And the same is true here. It says that there is a time to be born and a time to die. But there is also a time for everything else in between. There is a time to live. There's a time to plant and a time to, to pluck out what is planted. But there's also a time to water and to wait. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes is using this figure of speech, emphasizing the extremes to show that, that all of human experience, both the good and the bad, uh, both what is, what is commendable, what we love, and what we hate, is, uh, has its own time, has its own season, has its own purpose. Now, on one level, you can read these verses as, as instruction. They're telling us how to live uh, a wise life. They're telling us to develop the discernment to determine when it's time to do one thing, when it's time to perhaps do the opposite thing, and when it's time to do something in between. Now, verse 7 is a great example of this. It says there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Now, husbands, this is when you really need to perk up and, and listen, because we know from firsthand experience, don't we, that if, if we only develop the discernment to know when it's time to speak and when it's time to be silent, we would avoid a whole world of trouble and conflict. Uh, but instead, we, we speak when we should be silent, or we are silent when we should be speak, or when we speak when we're supposed to speak, we say too much, or we say it with the wrong tone, or when we remain silent when we're supposed to remain silent, we remain silent for too long. There is uh, a time for each season, and wisdom helps us to determine what season it is. The same is true of, of some of the other pairs in our poem as well. Verse 3 it says that there's a time to break down and a time to build up. There's a time to break down and a time to build up. You can think about that, uh, uh, applying it to our businesses or our projects. If you're a business owner, you may assume that God just wants you to keep building and building. I mean, that's the corporate mindset. It's to maximize profit. It's to keep expanding. But according to the scriptures, that may not be the wisest thing to do. There is a time to build up, but there is also a time to break down. Verse 6, it says that there's time to keep and there's time to cast away. We can apply that to our material possessions and to our wealth. 
especially in a time like this when our economy is in a recession and perhaps descending into a depression. In times like these, do we, do we invest or do we save? Do we, uh, do we continue to accumulate or do we give some of our money away? Do we hoard for the sake of ourselves and for our families or do we share what we have with those who are in need? There, there is a time for both extremes. There is a time for saving and there is a time for giving. And wisdom will enable us to determine uh, when is the right time for each. You could say that wisdom helps us to tell what time it is. Wisdom helps us to tell what time it is, not just in terms of minutes and hours, but in terms of what we should do. We need to be able to tell the time so that we would know how to live with wisdom. But, you know, if, if this poem, as much as it is about living wisely in determining what time it is, it's, it's not just about that. It's not just about what we do, because it, it's also about what God does. If you'll notice, some of these pairs actually aren't in our control. It, it says in verse 2, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. I mean, that's not in our control. That's not a matter for our wisdom to discern. It also says that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. We can't control those either. None of us can sit down with our planners or our schedules or our calendars and plan exactly how much weeping we're going to have in the next two weeks. Uh, those are factors that are outside of our control. Yes, we must learn to tell the time, but we also must learn to submit to the times when God is the one who is deciding what time it is. Time ultimately belongs to God. And in the mystery of his all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving wisdom, God has decided that this is the time for sickness. This is the time for an economic downturn. This is the time for social distancing. And you actually see that in verse 5. It says there's a time to embrace, and there's a time to refrain from embracing. And sometimes that's our choice. Sometimes that's a matter of our wisdom. But sometimes it's not up to us at all. It's actually up to God. God has ordained this season where we refrain from embracing. That is a matter under heaven that is under God's sovereign rule. As Christians, we don't just look around and see the world as it is. As Christians, we look around and see the world as God has intended it to be. And that includes a world that's infected by COVID-19. That, that includes our daily realities of social distancing, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, when we, when we truly come to understand this, uh, we actually move on from just accepting it and submitting to it to actually seeing the beauty of the times that God has ordained. Verse 11 actually says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything, every, every single one of those pairs has a a. Uh, a unique contribution to putting God's beauty on display. He has made everything beautiful in its time, not just life, but also death, not just laughter, but also weeping, not just embracing, but refraining from embracing. You know, we know that these are strange times, but it, the strangeness of this time of these times is bringing about a strangeness of beauty, a peculiar beauty brought about by peculiar times. It could be the beauty of being grateful for the things, the simple things in life that we so easily take for granted. 
It could be the beauty of, of rising up and, and showing each other uh, self-sacrificing generosity. It could be the beauty that comes from what we, we do to serve and to bless others because we need to recognize that God's beauty doesn't just show itself through what we see. God's beauty shows itself through what his people do. When life gets hard, God often chooses to manifest his beauty through the beautiful acts of his people. But, uh, you know, we all know this. We know this temptation. We, we know that our temptation when times get tough and when, when times get hard, our temptation is to just try to ride it out. It's just try to see this, this particular season as an interruption to normal life. And we're just going to sit back and wait and, and let someone else solve this problem for us. And when they've solved it, then, then we'll get back to, to following the Lord. Then we'll get back to living for his glory. If we do that, it might be comfortable. It might be safe. But, if, but we'll be missing out on the beauty of this moment. The, the beautiful um, display of God's glory and perfection and character that he wants to put on display through the beautiful acts of his people. You know, Christians have never chosen to ride it out when times have been hard. Christians have always seen the suffering of the world as an opportunity to show the world the beauty of the gospel. There is beauty to be seen, yes, but there is also beauty to be shown by the way that we respond to this crisis with love. Time belongs to God, and he's given us these times to reveal more of his beauty and glory. But he's also given us something else, a, a gift, a gift that is contained within this text here. A gift that actually opens up the key to true joy in this lifetime. And that's going to lead to our second point, God's gift. As the poem concludes at the end of verse 8, uh, the writer resumes um, in verse 9 by writing in prose. His poetry is done, and he's now commenting on the poem and the implications of the poem. And he begins with asking a question in verse 9. He, said, he asks, what gain has the worker from his toil? If you read Ecclesiastes, you'll know that this, this, is a, this question is kind of a key, key word, a key question, a key phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, the writer has spent a lot of time answering this question in the first two chapters. What gain has the worker from his toil? He's asking, at the end of the day, when my life is over, what will I take away? What will be the net gain, the net profit from all the contributions and efforts and toil that I put into my lifetime. Now, if you're a Christian, you know that what we do for Christ will endure forever. Uh, we can store up treasures in this world where moth and rust destroy, but we can also store up treasures in heaven uh, where moth and rust do not destroy. They will last forever. But Ecclesiastes, we need to recognize, is not written from that perspective. It's trying to understand the world as it is under the sun, um, as it is from a worldly perspective. And if we try to answer this question, what gain has the worker from his toil from the world's perspective, the honest and somewhat depressing answer is nothing. Nothing. There is no gain that the worker has from his toil. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. The writer says in verse 10 that he has seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The writer here, it could be King Solomon, it, it could be someone else, uh, but he writes about his experience in chapter 2, where he's seen everything that human beings can be busy with. We can be busy with work, 
We can be busy with education. We can be busy with family. We can be busy with career. We can be busy with pleasure. He's seen it all and he's tasted it all himself. But even so, he concludes that everything is vanity. Everything is vanity. And that word there, vanity, literally means a, a vapor or a mere breath. It's the imagery of, of smoke rising from a candle. You, you, you see it, and then it's gone. Or the breath that we see when, we, when we're outside on a cold winter's day. It, it's there for a moment, and then it's gone. That, that's what the word vanity means. Everything is vain. Everything will fade away. Nothing will last. That's true not just of what we do. Uh, it's true of the families that we raise, our, our children and our children's children. Every generation that comes after, it's only a matter of time before every single person who has lived, is living, or will live, will die and be forgotten. And David Gibson writes this, there is a time for everything. Now he's reflecting on the poem there. Life is a lyrical arrangement of good and bad, of relational complexity and nuanced subtleties. And at the end of it all, you go in a box in the cold, hard ground. What have you gained after living all the seasons of life? Nothing. You're dead. You experienced it all. You came and went. And look, you have no lasting gain. And those are, I mean, you kind of read that and you're like, did he really write that? And it, is this guy really preaching about this? Uh, well, we, we're not used to talking about death like this, right? This is, this is strange, and it's a hard truth for us to accept. And verse 11 actually helps us to understand why it's hard for us to accept. It says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. We've already seen that verse. And, and uh, the implication of that is, well, if God has made everything beautiful, then why doesn't it last? Verse 11 also says that God has put eternity into man's heart. He's put eternity into man's heart. In other words, we, we were made to last forever. And we were made to do things that last forever because the eternal God has put eternity in the hearts of those who are made in his image. And that's why we struggle. We struggle when we're confronted with this truth that nothing we do will last. But the honest truth in Ecclesiastes is bringing this to our attention is that everything we do, the degrees that we earn, the businesses that we build, the careers that we advance, the titles that we possess, the money that we save, even the families that we raise, all of it, all of it is vanity. All of it is fading away like vapor in the wind, like breath on a cold winter's day. We have a longing for eternity, but we do not see and experience that reality now, nor do we have the, the capacity to understand eternity that's what verse 11 says. Uh, he says he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We, if we had the capacity to understand eternity, to be able to reach back into the sands of time from the beginning, and to reach forward to the end and put it all together and understand it all with perfect comprehension, we would be God. Only the eternal God can understand the eternal history that he has created. We cannot understand it because we are not God. Only God is God. We are not. And for those who are not God, we must leave the mysteries of life to him. And so in light of all this, in light of all these reflections about the vanity of life, 
Although the reality is that the worker has no gain from his toil, he comes to this stunning conclusion in verse 12. He says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now here we, we see the stunning blessing of living life backward. Death teaches us that everything in this world is vanity. If it's going to pass away, it's going to burn up, it's going to disappear. And if that's true, if life is vanity, then the question we need to ask ourselves and the question, the, 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 the truth that God wants to press into our hearts is why would we ever live for this world? Why would we ever try to live in such a way that we find our significance and what we are building in this world? If we find our significance in the vanities of this world, then when the, when the world vanishes, then all of our significance will vanish with it. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy the good things in this world. It actually means the opposite. It's only when we stop finding our significance in this world that we start enjoying it for the first time. Again, David Gibson helpfully writes this. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life. By relativizing all that we do in our days under the sun, death can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. This is the main message of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. That is so wonderfully said. This, this, is, this is God's gift. God's gift is the ability to see the world, see life as God's gift to us. Because it's only when we see the world as God's gift that we will truly enjoy it. And the reason why we need to learn this lesson is because we don't see the world as God's gift for us to enjoy. We see the world as, as gain for us to be exploited. We see the world as a ladder for us to climb rather than a beautiful view for us to enjoy. Our, our toil becomes burdensome and heavy when we try to use it for what it was never meant to accomplish in our lives. We, we use it to try to find our significance. We use it to try to build our own little kingdoms, but, but none of it will last. And our significance will fade when the world fades. But when we see the world not as gain, but as gift, then we can finally learn to truly enjoy it, not as an end in itself but as a means to the greater end of knowing God and enjoying him forever. It's only when we learn this lesson that we stop using the world and we start enjoying the world instead. We stop living like the little kingdoms that we're trying to build matter. They, they don't. They're really just little sandcastles that will be washed away by the oceans of time. Yes, some of us may build stronger, taller, Fancier sandcastles. Some of us might decorate the sandcastles with pretty little seashells. But when the tides of time come and wash in, all of our sandcastles are going to wash away. It's really just a matter of time. Death puts life into perspective so that we can labor and toil and do good without feeling that we have to find our significance in any of those things. We don't find our significance in what we do. We find our significance, in fact, and this is our last point, in what God has done for us in Christ. And that leads to our final point, God's work. Up until now, the focus has been on 
the vanity of our work and about how nothing we do will last and about how all of us will be forgotten. But not all of those truths, they fade into the background of this glorious truth in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. We see that with man, all is vanity. But now we see that with God, nothing is vanity. Everything God does endures forever. There is nothing wasted when God is at work. There are no meaningless projects with God. There are no failed businesses or ventures with God. Everything God does endures forever. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that anyone or anything can do about it. Not kings, not demons, not death, not even time. Verse 15 says this plainly. It says, it describes the world as we experience it in the first half of the verse. It says, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. Life is an endless repetitive cycle of those pairs in the poem. It's a cycle of life and death, of war and peace, of weeping and laughing, of building and tearing down. But then it, it ends with this picture. It says, God seeks what has been driven away. God is, is reaching into that endless repetitive cycle, that 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 roundabout repetition of time that's driven away by history. He reaches into what is being driven away and he redeems it for his own purposes because nothing escapes God's providence. Nothing is wasted in his divine omnipotent rule. Even what is driven away and lost in the sands of history is sought out and found and folded into his sovereign omnipotent plan. God's work alone will stand the test of time and nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God alone stands as the sovereign of all history, as the master of time. And, and nothing reveals that with more force and with more beauty than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has shown us that everything that God has done endures forever. His work on the cross alone uh, it, it, it is, stands as the unchanging reality of all of creation and history. God is the master of time, and he has shown that through what he has accomplished in Christ. The scholar Philip Ryken puts it this way in his commentary. He says, when we witness the works of Jesus in the Gospels, we see a Savior who always knew what time it was. There was a time for him to be born. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. There was also a day appointed for Jesus to die. He died on that day and not a day before or a day later. The religious leaders were plotting against him, trying to put him to death as soon as they could, but they were not able to crucify him until the day that God had appointed. Before that time, Jesus had said his hour had not yet come, John 7.30. But when the hour did come, Jesus died on the cross so that as Romans 5, 6 says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus rose again at the right time, too, on the third day, as the scriptures had promised. From his birth to his death and then on to his resurrection, Jesus did everything timely in his saving work. My friends, Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he did it all 
at the right time. He did it all at the precise time that our triune God had ordained, not a millisecond sooner or later. Because if anyone knew what time it was, it was Jesus. You know, we are people who need to acquire wisdom, but Christ is wisdom itself. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Verse 14 says that God has done it. God has done it. Done what? Well, he has, he's done everything. He's done creation. He has done history. He has done past, present, and future. He has, he has done the cross. And why is that? So that people fear before him. Everything that exists within the bounds of time display God's sovereign rule so that we, his, his creation, his, his lost, the lost crown of his creation, humanity, would respond to God's sovereign rule and his mastery over time with, with fear. With fear. But this fear is not a fear of dread, at least not for the Christian, because Christ, crucified on the cross, has turned our dreadful fear of God's judgment, the dreadful fear of eternal punishment in hell apart from God, he has turned that fear into a reverential fear of wonder and awe at the one who makes everything beautiful in its time, including our salvation, our forgiveness, our reconciliation. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you in these days when we all find ourselves with a little bit extra time on our hands to seek Jesus, to know him, and to find salvation in him. Pray. Pray that God would reveal himself to you and and start reading God's word, the Bible. Start seeking to know Jesus because it's only in Jesus that you will find meaning. It's only in Jesus that you will find comfort. It's only in Jesus that you will find forgiveness. And for my fellow believers, my dear, precious brothers and sisters in Christ, whether I know you or whether I have yet to meet you in person, God's word reminds us today that we are not home yet. God has put eternity in our hearts and we do not see eternity, but we will see it one day. This isn't our home. We are just passing through this world on a temporary visa because our citizenship isn't on earth. It is in heaven. And this life is just a journey to get there. We're on our way to a far better country, to a a, uh, city that has foundations that cannot be shaken. We are heading to a house that Jesus himself is preparing for us that we would live with him forever. And so until we get there, until we we pass from the fleeting temporary vanity of this world to the world to come where everything that we do will also last forever because there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Until we get there, we let us enjoy the world that God has given to us now as a gift and not as gain. God has made everything beautiful in its time including the times that we live in now. Let us live not for this world, but let us live for Christ. You know, if you want your life to count for something, 
if you want your life to have lasting value, then we must look to Christ. We must look to the one who holds time in his hands. The one who, who everything he does endures forever. Let, let's, let's love what he loves. Let's hate what he hates. Let's do what he's doing in the world. Let's devote ourselves to the work that he cared about. Let's go on and make disciples. Let's be his hands and feet. <clears throat> Let us love one another with self-sacrificing gospel love. And let's pray. Let, let's pray that his kingdom would come. Not, not our kingdoms, because our kingdoms are in the world of vanity. His kingdom is in the world of what endures forever. All of our life's efforts and accomplishments will wash away upon the sands of time. But everything we do for Christ will endure forever. And Hebrews 6 verse 10 says, God is not unjust to us to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God will not overlook what you are doing for his glory, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his kingdom. God sees it and he will reward you for the work and for the love and for the service that you are committing to the saints and for your neighbors. And so let us, let us do that. Let us serve in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ, because that alone will not be vanity. That alone will endure forever. As the old poem goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the lessons that COVID-19 is teaching us. As hard as these times are, and as much as we want to keep praying for protection, uh, praying that you would preserve life, uh, we also pray that we would learn from this sovereignly ordained instructor to show us that if we've been living for this world, we must do so no longer. Uh, everything in this life is passing away, and there's nothing to be gained under the sun. But what we do for Christ's sake, for Christ's name, for Christ's glory, will endure forever. How we, how we long for that day. And so we pray, Father, that as, as COVID-19 continues to spread around the world and in our country and in our community, we would see the world with eyes of faith, with a biblical lens to see that, that even this can be made a beautiful season in its own time. And let us be, be part of, of how you are displaying your beauty in the world. May your people not shrink back and retreat. May your people not waste time with entertainment, but may your people rise up in generous sacrificial acts of love to display the glory of our triune God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.